How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host Charlotte Hancock, and I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, and today we are talking about um, climate change and how climate change is fueling extreme weather and really hurting vulnerable communities. Uh, for today's show, we're going to be discussing the latest in extreme weather events, Hurricane Dorian, and the effect that climate change has had and is having on storms like this one. Uh, so, for folks that don't know, Hurricane Dorian recently became a Category Five storm over this past weekend and proceeded to devastate the Bahamas, killing at least five people and leaving thousands without homes. Dorian is the second most powerful storm ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean and is tied as the most powerful to ever make landfall. Experts on climate are in agreement that climate change and particularly the warming of ocean temperatures have made storms like Dorian more frequent and more deadly. If the rise of ocean and land temperatures continues at the rate it has been on, we will see extreme weather increasingly often, which will have a disproportionate impact on rural rural communities, low-income communities, and communities of color. So despite all this, many politicians, including our president, continue to deny that climate change even exists and refuse to do anything to address it. To talk about all of this and more today, we are joined by our first two guests, Badisha Bhattacharya, the Deputy Director of Climate and Energy Policy at the Center for American Progress, and Ali Lopez, a University of Houston student combat medic with the Texas Army National Guard and creator of the Climate Change Rally Houston Strong for Climate. Uh, welcome, Badisha. Thank you for joining us and welcome, Ali. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you both here. So, um, Ali, I, I wanted to start initially with you um, as someone who has been directly impacted by another instance of extreme weather, Hurricane Harvey. Can you share a little, a little bit about that experience? Um, I'm sure seeing uh, footage of the storm going through the Bahamas recently has been uh, kind of traumatic for you and your community. Can you tell us a little bit about what your, your experience was with Hurricane Harvey and how that motivated you to take action on climate change? Yes, of course. So it was about uh, two years ago when I had uh, first um, started college. I started at the University of um, Texas A&M University in Galveston. I started there, and um, Harvey hit uh, in August 24th of 2017. So once it hit, we had like a couple of days to get all our stuff and kind of evacuate. We went to like a nearest school, a host school that um, was alongside with the college station. And they kind of just kept us there until, like, the storm blew over. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty traumatic just to see how, you know, people weren't as lucky to get out of there. You know, that's where their homes are. I Me, mean, I was lucky enough that the school was able to accommodate us. But for a lot of residents there, their homes were just completely destroyed. 
And going back to that, it was kind of, it was devastating because you couldn't do anything about it. Well, I personally, that's what hurt the most because I couldn't do anything about it. And after that, I told myself I was not going to not do anything about it again. You know, I wanted to be able to help communities and all the residents. And I got so passionate about the Houston community and how much they supported and did so much just to help people get out of that devastation. So I then moved to the University of Houston and studied public health and kind of got into like the public sector of actually like the prevention after the climate has hit, after the devastation. I wanted to do some more work with humanitarian aid and do that aspect instead. Um, so I, uh, I started Houston Strong for Climate. I hope to make that a, a campaign across Houston and continue doing that. Um, I had a lot of people show up, and we were able to come together. We did it in Third Ward, which is a low-income community here in Houston. And it was just amazing, the people that showed up and, like, the amount of um, compassion that the community has for one another. Uh, Badisha, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, as, as here we're t- hearing about Ali talk about working with low-income communities in Houston and making sure the, the attention of the rallies that she's focusing on here, these climate change rallies, um, are paying attention to our most vulnerable communities um, and making sure that those voices are uplifted. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your work in climate change and how, um, and how you sort of try to fit that ethos into the space that, um, the space and the policy work you have as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I think, absolutely a critical part of thinking about climate policy um, and one that hasn't been addressed well in the past. And I think we here at CAP are very focused on um, how do you put communities that have been have borne the the worst impacts of this are least prepared to 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 be able to deal with these impacts or losing their homes or having are being displaced, et cetera, how can you put them at the center of any climate strategy going forward? Um, and I think the two pieces around how do you address the mitigation of, of greenhouse gas emissions and how do you make sure communities are put at the center of that and being brought along as part of the process and the workers in those communities and in other places that are also going to be very impacted by um, by climate change and addressing climate change how do you how do you bring them into the process fully and along the whole way and so we here at CAP have been working very closely um, with environmental justice communities on the ground um, and groups around the country um, to to bring forth policy principles that address that issue exactly. So. Um to give a little bit of context about my background and why I'm so interested in this, I'm actually, I'm from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, I was born and raised there, uh, and my parents uh, still live there and went through two back-to-back Category 5 hurricanes, um, Maria and um, Irma, two years ago. Um, and so I love hearing how national policy groups um, really get plugged in and, like, sort of hear voices um, from the local communities. I know that um, the Center for American Progress went to Puerto Rico after Maria to make sure that they were speaking to the community's most impacted. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, um, and, and I, I know you weren't on that trip because you didn't work here at the time, but can you talk a little bit more about um, how the work that you've been doing um, sort of uh, finds the voices to make sure that, I, it, like, to, to match with the numbers there? Yeah, I mean, I think we have um, made a concerted effort to get those voices and elevated through a story bank project that um, the Center for American Progress has has put 
has been working on over the past year to really bring voices from impacted communities directly to um, the national stage and bring those to policymakers and and elevate those voices and those stories because I think that is what makes this really human. People people are concerned about climate change not because not only because of the impacts that's going to happen in the future but because of the impacts that's having today in compu- communities around the country and so I think um, par- a project like our story bank project is doing exactly that in, in bringing those voices out and telling those stories and letting that lead the conversation around what we need to do about it. So just just on that last point, I think we we talk very often, especially for folks like myself who are not as immersed in the climate space, about the the future impacts of climate change and the the threat that that climate change poses um, to our children's generation or or children's children's generation or just future generations in general, and that's a very real threat. Um, but it's also having impact right now, and so. Uh, the president, you know, Donald Trump said, uh, "I've never even heard of a Category Five, but the reality is, these these things, these storms, like, uh, are becoming more and more common, right? This there there are real changes that are happening because of climate change today." Absolutely. Um, And I think that every time we have one of these storms, those of us who work in this space and and many people around the country are like, why are we doing something about this? Um, Because that's absolutely right. Um, Scientists from around the world, from 40 countries um, in the IPCC have told us that this is is happening today and these effects are due to man-made climate change. And so this is not an abstract idea at all. Um, And unfortunately, um, not only President Trump, but the 150 climate deniers in Congress are burying their heads in the sand on this issue. Yeah, and you can find out who those 150 climate deniers are in Congress by going to getthefactsout.com where they are listed and you should be tweeting at them and letting them know to get in line with the science and that this is settled science. Uh, climate, climate change is real and folks should not be denying the science, especially folks in Congress or in uh, the executive administration. So we are talking right now about... Um, uh, the the recent storm, Hurricane Dorian. We're talking about climate change. We have Ali Lopez on the phone, and we're speaking in in studio with Badisha Bhattacharya. Uh, this is the Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show, and we're going to talk a bit more with our guests when we come back from this commercial break. Welcome back to Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, and today we are talking with some guests about the uh, impacts of extreme weather uh, like hurricanes and the increasing regularity and size of hurricanes um, and the pattern of, of those hurricanes and how that is a direct result of climate change. Um, so we are speaking with our guests, Ali Lopez and Badisha Bhattacharya. Um, Ali, I'm going to take this next question to you here. Uh, I, I think that what we've seen with so many um, movements over the past several years. Um, Young people have been leading the movements for um, gun violence prevention, climate change, so many uh, of these movements that are important to us for for decades, but we're seeing the media really start to pay attention to that with um, young people like Greta Thunberg, um, the the climate change activists, um, and folks like yourself um, who are leading in your community in Houston. Um, so what do you recommend for um, other young people who want to get involved? What was the sort of what was what were your first steps in getting involved in sort of leading the uh, the local chapter of your community, and how can you uh, 
how do you suggest other folks do the same if they're feeling um, the impacts of these sorts of extreme weather weather patterns? So um, I would just say research, research. A lot of it took me a lot of online researching, especially when I was um, when they evacuated us. All I could do was go on the internet and just um, go to the library and like research different things I can do. And when I got back, I made a list. I made I'm going to call these different organizations. Do they need help? And then doing that, I just I got in contact with some great organizations like Team Rubicon, which is an, in- an international disaster relief organization. Great people. They're founded on veterans. Um, uh, civilians also join, and they just help the community in such an amazing way that I I, I couldn't say no to that. And I think other people as well would love to do this as, um, in their free time or whenever they could just come out and help rebuild a house like we chipped paint and helped one of the homeowners come into her house for the first time and it's just an an amazing experience and i think any young adult who would want to do this um they would love it um and i think I, I think it's fabulous that you're doing so much uh, local work and doing a lot of direct impact work. Um, I think that's hugely crucial and hugely valuable. Um, and we, I think we see that in lots of places with lots of natural disasters. Um, but Isha, for folks who are not um, in directly impacted places, when you sort of zoom out and you look at this overall, um, what are the sorts of uh, what are the sorts of things that you see being um, helpful in the policy space if we want to if we want fixes here um that are that are not the fixes that maybe are going to be something that helps somebody tomorrow but going to be the things that actually help fix some of this long term yeah i mean there's i think the short answer to your question is we have to do a lot of things at the same time (laughs) i wish there was some silver bullet um policy response and i think the other thing is there are people you know the costs are not the costs are being felt by some people a lot more than others. I think that is absolutely true. Um, But the costs are actually being felt by by all of America in some way. You know, natural disasters cost the U.S. over $450 billion in the past three years and are projected to cost $54 trillion globally by 2040. These are huge things that the whole public is bearing the costs of. Um, You know, crop damage, lost labor. There's a lot of economic costs that folks all over the country, not to mention wildfires and all these extreme events that we're seeing. So this is absolutely being felt across the country by a lot of folks. And in terms of policy solutions, I think there are economy-wide solutions such as a clean energy standard or other ways to sort of um, figure out how to um, put the price of carbon into the equation when you're thinking about um, the economy and then sector by sector solutions. So some sectors are going to be trickier to um, decarbonize, quote unquote, to, to, to reduce carbon, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions from um, such as manufacturing, transportation. And so you need to tailor specific types of policies for those sectors. And I, but I think the biggest uh, opportunity in the, the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, is the electricity sector. Um, we've seen a lot of states already move toward 100% clean energy or clean electricity. Um, and the, there is absolutely a big opportunity to do something um, on the national level there. Yeah, and I'd love to dig in a little bit more on some of that. When you say we have to go, when you say we have to go sector by sector here, uh, does that mean we're talking about a bunch of different agencies, just like changing how stuff gets regulated? Do we have to wait for Congress to make new laws? Um, what, like, I just, it's hard to see, like, what's the holdup here when when you have these congressional districts being hit over and over again by some of these repeat extreme, what, like, 
recently more extreme uh, weather patterns, um, it, it's I'm I'm having a hard time seeing how they're having a hard time seeing that they're going to be paying for this on the front end or the back end. You know? Yeah, I mean <laughs> the. The answer is no, we don't. We could act on this today if we had leadership in Congress and the president um, who already has existing authorities to to take action. Um, so President Trump has rolled back a lot of action that the Obama administration had already taken on climate change. So we have moved backwards um, and that is extremely concerning. So um, it will take both pr- leadership from the president and some of these things will take congressional action. So there, it's a combination. But to, there is by no means we are by no means in a situation situation today um, from the perspective of what we can do with existing authorities that the president couldn't act to 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 stem some of these these worst impacts. So there's just there's no reason why uh, he, he couldn't put in some executive orders. Absolutely. And, and he could start by not having undone the executive yeah. orders that <laughs> the previous administration had done. But yes, he could put in executive orders um, on on the power sector, on getting uh, reducing emissions from cars. Like there's a lot that he can do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I know we're about to to lose our on-the-phone guest here. So, um, Ali, we're talking to Ali Lopez here. And, Ali, where can folks find more information about the work you do? Um, do you have a website or a Twitter handle that folks should check out? Uh, yes, I have a, my Twitter is uh, Ali Lopez 1 uh, or 16. Uh, I don't really use it as much, but I'm starting <laughs> to try to, yeah. Uh, I actually made the Twitter for uh, when I first started doing work with um, Center for American Progress. So um, I want to get a hopefully campaign going with a strong for climate, but I'm always in contact with the Center for uh, American Progress. I love what they're doing, so I'll definitely uh, send a link to them Absolutely. and get that out there. Great. Thank you so much for uh, for talking with us, Allie. We really appreciated having you on the phone. Um, and Badisha, I know we're going to have you coming back with us after the break, but for folks who might be just joining us, um, can you tell us a little bit more about where folks can find you and your work online? Absolutely. At uh, centerforamericanprogress.org, you will find... Um, my work on the energy environment teams section um my twitter i also don't tweet that much personally (laughs) but i do have a twitter handle which is um at badisha underscore bb um and uh but i think the best place to look is on the cap website fabulous so we've been talking to ali lopez and badisha Bhattacharya about the effects of extreme weather especially the most recent hurricane hurricane dorian and we will be right back after this break and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Uh, and we are back. Thanks for staying on with us, Badisha. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thank you. And we are also excited to welcome on Dr. Anna Scabriel, uh, Director of Grants and Programs at the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And so we've been talking uh, through the first segment of the show here today a bit about um, both the impacts of Hurricane Dorian uh, and and uh, other storms like Hurricane Dorian, other similar Category 5 storms, and the pattern of increasing uh, number of storms and intensity of storms and how that's linked to climate change uh, overall. And so, um, Anna, thankfully, Hurricane Dorian passed through the Virgin Islands while it was only a Category 1 level storm. Um, but the Virgin Islands is not a stranger to hurricanes and extreme weather. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the mission of the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands and the work that you are, are currently doing? 
Sure. So the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands is a territory-wide community foundation. So we cover St. Thomas, St. John, St. Croix, Water Islands. We were established in 1990 to serve donors who wanted to give back to the community and also to serve the community itself and ensure a you know, better quality of life for current and future generations. So we do grant making, we do advocacy work, we connect um, you know, just folks who want to make an impact with folks who are working on the ground, nonprofit organizations, whether they're 501c3s or grassroots organizations on an annual basis. Pre-storm, we were doing about two to three million dollars in grant making annually. Since the storms, for the let's say over the past two years, we've actually done about fourteen million dollars in grant making. So we certainly expanded our work since the storms, but we have stayed true to our mission to enhance the quality of life in the Virgin Islands. Wow, and and so can you, first of all, that's great. And and how does um, your role and the role of community foundations like yours more generally either change or what does that look like in the wake of disasters like, like Hurricane Dorian? And what has been um, your approach to disaster relief? Sure. So I would say that one of the great things about community foundations after disaster is that we are ready to act pretty much as soon as possible. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is because we're already invested in the community. We have community partners. We have a good sense of what's going on, what organizations are already working in certain areas. And in some cases, you know, leaders of, of organizations are a phone call or a text message away. Um, this is especially important in a situation um, like, you know, the Virgin Islands or like the Bahamas, where communication is gonna be down for quite a while. Um, I, after the storms, happened to be in Florida, so I was one of the only people in our organization that had internet access and a phone line, you know, so I was able to do a lot of things because I was away, but for the folks who are on the ground right now, it is very difficult to get anything done when you don't have that line of communication. But again, one of the great things about a community foundation is we knew immediately, okay, this is a list of 10 organizations that we can direct emergency grants to, and that's exactly what we did. We identified 10 organizations that we knew, you know, were working pre-storm, or we knew just because of word of mouth or our own personal connections that they were working post-storm. So we issued $25,000 emergency grants to those organizations. We were able to get the funds to them, and then they were able to have immediate access to money. That was within two weeks of the storm. And then following that, we, you know, we slowly started to figure out, okay, what's going to work? Let's do a Google form because we know that people can fill out that application on their phones. They don't necessarily need to be on a computer. Um, we also accepted a variety of different application formats. So, you know, send me an email with what you're trying to do or fill out this application. As time went on, we were able to get more sophisticated. You know, we had an online grants management system that we were using for reporting, but for the emergency grants, we just really wanted to get money into the hands of trusted partners um, as soon as possible because we knew that that was going to be important in that critical, you know, week to two week to month period. 
Anna, um, I know the work that that you guys did down there um, and that the Community Foundation um, has done in the Virgin Islands for so many years uh, was just critically important. Um, Speaking from, you know, personal experience with my parents being there and everything, I just know um, how crucial it was that you guys were there. Um, So in our last segment, we talked a bit about how low-income communities especially are impacted by natural disasters and extreme weather. Um, So can you talk a little bit through how organizations like the Community Foundation um, in the Virgin Islands um, considers its approach to disaster relief. What are the types of organizations you're really trying to make sure um, get the the money um, that is coming in and making sure that that money is spent well? Um, I think so many people are seeing the footage of Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas and unfortunately are probably about to see similar footage um, in the southeastern United States as it continues its approach up the coast. And people always want to make sure that their money is going to the right place. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how uh, organizations that are in touch with um, local, on the ground, um, uh, like just (laughs) community organizations um, play a crucial role there and the types of organizations that you work with? Sure. Um, Well, first I will say, you know, I don't think that there's anything such as perfect. So um, in any situation, you're trying to do the best job that you can while making decisions quickly and while, you know, recognizing the time is of the essence, but also wanting to be effective. So in our case, we, again, had a really good pulse on what was happening on the ground because in some cases, you know, things were happening right outside of our office. Um, So we knew, okay, this organization just down the street is doing a free feeding program for people in the neighborhood. So in some cases, in a small context like this, you're just going to know things just by simply being out there and being connected to the community. In some cases, it's going to be because you've been working with those organizations for years and years, and you know their mission, and you know what they're about. Um, Another factor that helped us is that we've been doing data collection over the years um, through a project that we disseminate an annual data book. So we already knew, okay, you know, we have about a third of our children living in poverty. So kids are going to be one of the groups that's going to need you know, special kinds of support. Um, We already had a sense that kids living in public housing were going to be particularly challenged. We had a sense that schools were going to be closed for some time, which they were, and when they resumed, they were going to likely be on split session, so only going to school for half the day. So we knew that school programming or programming that was operating outside of school to supplement that would be especially important. So it's sort of like we looked at... um, particular risk groups, and we tried to identify organizations or individuals that were working to uh, address those particular groups. Another example that I really love talking about is the Iggy Project, and that's I-G-G-I, Iggy the Iguana, Um, (laughs) and this was just one of those things that came about, again, you know, small island living. This woman came to our office. She said, you know, I created these materials after Hurricane Marilyn in 1995. There's a teacher guide. There's a coloring book. It's all about the iguana and his experience in the storm and how he processed it. And not only is it for the kids, but it's also for the adults in their lives. So the teachers need to understand what the kids and themselves might be going through so that they can process it and, you know, be there for the kids, but also make sure that they're in a, in a mindset and in a place where they are also processing it. So that was a project that was extremely grassroots. This woman had it. 
we kind of took it under our wing. We've been supporting it. They do puppet shows and dancing programs in schools and in Head Start centers and in other child care facilities. They're now going to be expanding to do programming with the long-term recovery group. Um, and it's just something that's really exciting that really, you know, came out of something that would connect well with local children who can understand the concepts of an iguana because they see them every day. And we wanted it to be something that would connect directly to them. So, you know, there's a lot more that I could say on this subject, but I would just reiterate the importance of already being tapped into the communities and having a sense of, you know, who are the vulnerable populations and who are the groups that are targeting those vulnerable populations. And and I love that last example of Iggy the Iguana, um, both because of the 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 cultural relevance and sort of the the connectability with community um and and also because it begins to address the trauma that comes with these type of yes. events extreme weather events especially for children but not only for children bring with them a certain level of trauma um and 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 a difficulty again especially for young kids in terms of tra- having to process what's happening particularly if there's a loss of a home or or even worse um, injury or, or death of someone that they might know or others in the community. Um, and these things need to be processed and there's trauma that goes with it. And so part of the part of the toll that we see with the increasing pattern here of extreme weather um, is both the economic costs, a little bit of what we talked about before, and also the very real human costs and the human toll that this takes, um, both on, on sort of victims, for lack of a better word, of extreme weather and survivors of extreme weather, people who get to the other side of a storm um, but still have to deal with the impacts and and sort of um, picking up uh, of their lives, whatever may have been impacted by the storm that rolled through. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think part so much of what you talked about, Anna, speaks to the resilience of communities. And oftentimes, I think the resilience of communities that are most vulnerable. Um, oftentimes, our most vulnerable communities have had to be resilient time and time again, um, not just through extreme weather, but through other circumstances as well. And we know that we have a responsibility, we being this sort of royal we, to put forth policies to begin to stem the tide here, to begin to... Um, stem the uh, the the increasing aggressiveness of these storms and the increasing um, um, frequency of the storms. And so, um, Badisha, turning turning back to you here for a moment, what types of policies should we be, um, you know, it, it almost feels daunting, right? Climate change is one of these things. It's like, well, what a, I'm, I'm one single person. What can I do about climate change? What can individuals do about climate change? What sort of behavioral things can we change? Or do we need really, in a, and I think the answer here is we do need really <laughs> massive, large-scale change. What does that look like from a policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And um, I think the number one thing individuals can do, because I do think we're going to need large-scale change, is go vote and go make your voice heard in the ballot box. Because right now, um, you know, the president and... I had said earlier, 150 members of Congress don't even believe in climate change. They don't believe this is happening, um, let alone taking action on it. So I think the number one thing individuals can do is is get out. And, you know, next year we've got, you know, governor's races, Senate races, state legislature's races, as long as well as um, the president and con- congressional races that, um, that are all going to be up. And I think, you know, making it very clear to your representatives that, uh, climate change is impacting you and that you are going to hold them accountable if they do not take do something about it is the number one thing. Now, that's not a very satisfying answer, I think, um, for a lot of people in their day-to-day. And I do think there are you know decisions that consumers can make on a day-to-day um, 
on a day-to-day basis uh, in their communities, whether it's um, figuring out uh, how to which also affects your bottom line, figuring out how can your home, how to make your home more energy efficient, um, thinking about um, driving less and taking public transit more. I mean, these are all things that feel like small decisions, but in the aggregate actually can matter. Um, but I think uh, people who say that individual action or simply innovating our way out of the problem through our research and development, which is a, which is a message you hear a lot from folks, um, that's not enough. It's it's important, but it is absolutely not enough. And I think um, have electing people into government who are going to do what it takes and and also be very very mindful that um, the the needs of the most vulnerable populations are put at the center of that process, um, and the needs of workers are put at the center of that process. That's I think um, what individuals can do more than anything else. What's the what's the call to action? So when we when we think about um, holding elected officials accountable um, for their action or, or too often inaction on this, um, and we're say someone's picking up the phone and, and calling a member of Congress or calling a state, what is, what is the ask here? What should we be expecting our elected officials to be doing that that perhaps they may not be doing right now? Yeah, I mean I think um, right now there's a couple things. Um, I think there are our bills moving in Congress, very specifically um, this fall, Representative McEachin is going to be introducing a bill called the 100% Clean Economy Act, which sets a target for, you know, economy-wide emissions reductions. And I think individuals can call their members and tell them to sign on as original co-sponsors to that bill. That's a very concrete action um, that folks can take. And the other thing is, you know, the Trump administration has been extremely um has basically gutted climate science and has been has put been putting climate denial across the board in the federal government um, as a, as something that they're doing and so hold telling their members to use their authority as oversight um, the oversight authority for the federal government and and doing oversight on the Trump administration is the second thing that I would recommend if you're calling a member of Congress yeah and I think it's important I, I totally agree. It's hugely important to um, call members of Congress and vote, but I also think it's important to quickly uh, point out that residents of the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico can't actually, unfortunately, vote for president and have a non-voting member of Congress. So um, as I think our final question to you there, um, Anna, uh, I wanted to ask, is there anything that you would like to ask on the behalf of people of Virgin Islands that you work with um, on a regular basis for yourself um, that you would like people to do to take action? Um, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess, you know, first would be within the context of this conversation, if you are going to donate money, just make sure that you're vetting the organization that you're donating to. There are a lot of GoFundMe pages that pop up after the storm. And you know, some of them are genuine and they are by the organizations or individuals that are well connected to them, but some of them are not. Um, you know, there are some folks that unfortunately take advantage of situations like this. So just make sure that you're vetting the places that you're planning to donate to. Um, you know, I know that there is a lot of uh, disaster fatigue these days. So we obviously don't expect that folks can donate to every single disaster, but if you are going to do it, you know, just, just be smart about it. And I, I, you know, I'm not really sure what's going to happen with the disaster funding and potentially being redirected. I know that's something that just came back on the radar recently, but hopefully that doesn't happen. And that could be something else that folks can, you know, speak to their um, speak to their policymakers and, and their elected officials about as well. Yeah. 
Before we uh, before we do a readout here, that's that last point's really important. Trump has proposed transferring, I believe, it's 160 million dollars from FEMA to for disaster recovery to ICE for more deportation raids. Uh, so having those um, skewed priorities is hugely important here. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're just about at the end of our conversation here. Um, Anna, if folks would like to fi- find more information about your organization. Uh, where can they go? Sure, they can check out our website, www.cfvi.net, the CF Community Foundation, vi.net. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook under Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands, on Twitter, or on Instagram. Great. And that was Dr. Annis Gabrielle at the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands. Um, and then, uh, Badisha, where can folks find more information about your work? Yeah, they can go to centerforamericanprogress.org under the Energy Environment section. And on Twitter, we're at uh, CAP Energy Policy. Wonderful. Um, we've been talking to Badisha Bhattacharya, the Deputy Director of Climate and Energy Policy at the Center for American Progress, as well as Dr. Annis Gabrielle, um, a U.S. Virgin Islands resident who also works at the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands. And we've been talking today about climate change and the extreme weather patterns um, that are a result of climate change, including an increased uh, number of and potency of hurricanes. Um, This has been Charlotte Hancock on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. And Brent J. Cohen. We will see you all next week. Hello, and we're back with the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. We are now joined by Bob Ney, reporter with Talk Media News. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Well, thank you, Brent. Yeah, absolutely. So, Bob, when I was in uh, high school civics, I learned that there are three co-equal branches of government, uh, you know, Congress and Senate together being one of those. uh, And yet we're hearing that Mitch McConnell is waiting on Donald Trump before moving on gun legislation. What is going on? That's right, Brent. He's he's, uh, going against the civics lessons. Uh, At first sight, people would say, oh, He's actually kind of protecting his Republican Senate seats, uh, you know, waiting for a decision to be made. But that's not it. He actually doesn't trust the president because the president may say, oh, yes, we'll do the following, one, two, three. And then McConnell, let's say, for example, an assault ban. I mean, they had that once in the in the uh, Congress, you know, and it was actually passed. But let's say that uh, all of a sudden uh, they do something and then... The National Rifle Association picks up the phone, calls President Trump, and President Trump says, oh, I'm going to veto that. Well, then everybody stuck, stuck their necks out. And I think that McConnell simply doesn't trust the president on this issue at all. So he's willing to abdicate his uh, constitutional yes. responsibility to protect the president. Oh, yes. Ab- well, yes, and himself, and he'll abdicate anything right now. It's going to be an election year with 22 seats up. Yep. So uh, just about 30 seconds left here, Bob. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about what we all know, which is that uh, putting children in cages has a traumatic effect on those children. Well, it does. And there's an inspector general's report and the facility caretakers have, you know, talked to the inspector general. There's a whole brand, a whole list of things. Uh, children traumatized, children taken to one place. The parents aren't there. They're taken to another place. These are also children who have come from uh, areas where they've seen murders, they've seen rapes, and then they come into the United States and there's tons of, of chaos. And uh, so uh, also health care needs, you know, different uh, items to be taken uh, in account, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for children. So, yes, it's a very uh, obviously alarming report. 
heaping trauma on top of trauma. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining us. This has been the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Our thanks to Mark Grimaldi, our producer for today's show. This has been Brent J. Cohen with the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.